Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Welcome to Touchy Subjects, the podcast that aims to make those awkward conversations around domestic and sexual violence just a little less awkward. I'm Sean. I'm Allie. And I'm Amanda. And today's episode, we're going to be discussing Women's History Month. Yeah, so it is March now, and that means that it is uh, the middle of Women's History Month. This Awareness Month is actually really important to the work that we do, so we wanted to make sure that we acknowledge this month um, in our podcast. And also, um, you know, what we hope to do today is kind of frame our work around historical moments within women's history. Um, because without the women that have come before us and without the women who have, who really did the work from the beginning, um, we wouldn't be able to do this prevention and education now. And so we thank them and we acknowledge them and um, we want to be that to future generations. We want to contribute um, our own piece of history. So, yeah. I also realized that having me on the episode talking about Women's History Month and the things that have impacted my work, it's going to be a little awkward for some people because, you know, not a woman. <laughs> but a lot of things that have happened in women's history do still directly impact the work that I'm doing because of the foundation that women have laid before me. So it's important for me to like recognize that me doing the work that I'm doing is possible because of the foundation that has been laid by women. Excellent point, Sean. Yeah. And, you know, even in, in saying that though, Sean, like that's something that is important to our work because it is, you know, women's history month is about celebrating women. Um, but it's also about bringing the equality of men and women and of genders to to an equal playing field, right? To bringing them um, to the to the same space, and having your voice your voice is important. And I don't think that just because it's Women's History Month doesn't mean that your knowledge, your expertise, um, and your voice aren't impactful here because you are a very important voice to the work that we do. Yeah, we need more men who are willing to step into those roles and acknowledge um, we're not going to go anywhere without the support of men along with it. I also think that it kind of plays a bit into how at least the women's movement itself in terms of women's history has kind of always played out is that the women's movement of itself has always been intersectional or at least started like it started off by intersectionality but then it very quickly falls under um, straight white women and that's the focus and that's the people working in it or working towards that equality where then every other group just gets kind of like pushed out to the sides or like no nah, we're not going to worry about their issues because we as women have our own issues when you can't isolate them mm -hmm. like you always need to have people of all different backgrounds working in every movement because every social issue impacts every other social group so by doing it isolated, you're really just making work harder for everyone. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if we look into um, 
a little bit of the past, it was work from the liberation movement and civil rights that actually laid the foundation for feminism and women's rights issues as well. So like you said, everything is intertwined and we can help each other. We can feed off of each other's energy or, you know, or not. And it's really important that we do. Yeah. So if you just look at like the Seneca Falls convention that took place, Frederick Douglass spoke at the Seneca Falls convention, which was primarily set up to be an empowerment, like start the empowerment movement for women to, for women to advocate for equal rights around the same time that abolitionists were doing the same thing in the civil rights movement. So clearly there was an intertwining between the abolitionist movement and the like in the civil rights movement, as well as with the women's movement, but it quickly then became where we're going to focus solely on white women. Black women are going to be isolated and not talked about nearly as much or even mentioned, where they even had, at some points had black women being removed or not allowed to participate in some of the activities that were being done to promote women's rights. Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's really talk about women's history as far as how this has affected our work today. Right. Because that's where we're coming from today. We wouldn't be talking about this if it didn't have direct impact on our work. And so, you know, there's women's history would take I mean, that could be a, a podcast in itself, like an entire podcast series about how we got to the place that we are in as women today and where our movement is going, where feminism is going um, and where women's liberation is going. However, I think that, um, you know, Sean, you mentioned the Seneca Falls Convention um, and I want to kind of hit on a couple of those key historical moments um, that will help contextualize the rest of what we're talking about today. And so um, I think that 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 time period around the Seneca Falls Convention, so it's largely seen as the first women's rights gathering, the first women's rights conference of this size um, in the United States, right? And from there, I think there's going to be millions of, (laughs) of small achievements between this and when women gained the right to vote in 1919, right? But that's going to be another point in time where um, where this movement gained a lot of traction. Um, and then from there, moving towards what we do, um, the work that we have, it really goes from, from the 70s until now, right? Um, and so I feel like there's some really big time time periods that are important to this conversation. Um, but for speci- specifically the what was called battered women's movement, um, that really gained most of its traction in the 1970s. So really mentioning mentioning the uh, battered women's movement as it was called, like when it first started, really that's kind of where our line of work stems from, is because our jobs really wouldn't have existed without that movement because no one really saw domestic violence as that big of an issue. Um, and even in 1972, when the Equal Rights Amendment passed, which would have guaranteed equal rights to all American citizens, regardless of their sex, it was never ratified in the United States. The amendment passed, but the states never ratified it, so it never became an amendment. This is in part due to um, Phyllis Shafley mainly because her argument was that if it did get ratified, that it would remove some gender-specific privileges for women. 
like not being a part of the draft or um, having kind of a greater um, chance of getting custody of kids in court cases, um, the benefits of Social Security being a dependent wife, like those kinds of things. They were worried. She was using those fears then essentially to kind of say, hey, maybe we shouldn't ratify this because it's not going to be necessarily beneficial to women, even though really it would have been. But she's operating from the standpoint of where we had to focus on these are the gender roles that are for women. These are gender roles for men. If this passes, those gender roles kind of go out the window. And I don't want that to happen, even though I'm a very well-educated lawyer person who could be just fine on her own, decided to advocate for maintaining gender roles. That's interesting to me. Um, But it also makes me feel like maybe there was some validity in her argument because of how entrenched gender roles were at that time um following you know that's just a decade or two after the the 50s when the idea of this you know american nuclear family um was so popular or maybe not even popular is the right word but it was so ingrained in our culture that how you know how if that had passed what would that have looked like in um, in reality, um, you know, I don't, I don't know much about this particular amendment. Um, I'd have to, to do more deep dive into, um, this Phyllis and her, uh, her stance on this. But one thing that I do know, looking back on the history specifically of our movement is that we had to start in places where today we look back and say that was, that wasn't ideal. Right. Um, we, today recognize that domestic and sexual violence are intersectional issues. Um, But when the battered women's movement started, it largely erased all of the work of women of color who had been there and been doing this work for generations because what our culture cared about at the time was middle-class white cisgender women. Um, And so, you know, recognizing that history has to have its start somewhere. And so I find it interesting that maybe her stance was that that was too radical of a change at the time. I don't know. Well, you have to think we're talking about a time in history when the the family life, the family unit was so held intact by women and it was expected to be held intact by women. And even if someone was being battered in their relationship and they left, um, you know, they were they would be denied welfare because of their husband's income. And so how were they supposed to leave those situations when they had no way of taking care of themselves or their family by leaving it? Yeah. yeah. And especially like looking at laws and stuff in the 70s, non-fault um, divorce wasn't even legal until the 70s. So like, you there had to be a there had to be a reason why the divorce was happening in order for that divorce to happen and if somebody wasn't reporting domestic violence because they were afraid to report domestic violence like a lot of people are they were never going to be able to get that divorce from their partner which also i'm assuming once non-fault divorce became legal so people can get divorces for whatever reason they don't need to specify that was kind of when the three of our like locations and shelters and stuff that we work for kind of opened up 
because then there was the realization that, oh, there's a need for these types of shelters in order to be able to help people. Yeah, it was it was 1969 when California first um, adopted a no fault divorce law and they were one of the most progressive states at the time. Right. So you're looking at it wasn't until 1969 when it happened for California and how long it took for other states to catch up to that. Um, a lot of other a lot of other states didn't even start acknowledging the fact that, you know, um, rape or battered women or marital rape was even an issue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's let's give some timeline uh, context here. And so um, we're talking about the early 70s now, right? This is when um, the uh, feminist movement is taking course. We're, we're still in the midst of civil rights movement, which um, to note, the the feminist movements really emerged out of the civil rights movements, right? They they really for a while for a while were one and the same, um, and uh, and had a lot of the same goals. And so our domestic violence, sexual assault um, movements then came out of the feminist movements and um, shelters like ours, the the agencies that we worked for. Um, the very babies, the the infant stages of our agencies were shelters. Um, but even before that, in the early 70s, when when people realized that there was a need to help women who have been abused in their homes, um, the first uh, attempts at doing that were actually from volunteers. They weren't based in um, you know, entities like agencies like ours. There wasn't a single place um, for these abused individuals to go. Um, they were contact or they would contact individuals who were volunteers who opened up their homes to other women. Um, and we are talking about women at this time. There wasn't much of a of an acknowledgement at all that men could be abused during this period. Um, and so these women would be welcomed into volunteers' homes, um, and it would be kind of a uh, a crisis situation, right? It was very much uh, addressing the needs of a victim immediately in the aftermath of leaving an abusive situation. Um, eventually, it didn't take very long for the movement to understand that that needed to be more formalized, um, and that's when actual agencies started popping up, right? Um, but the same thing was true. It was very much a focus on the immediate healing in the aftermath of leaving a, a, an abusive situation. Um, not so much the type of work that we do now where we understand that uh, abuse doesn't happen in a vacuum and we have to take a holistic approach. Um, and so in the mid mid to late 70s, that's when agencies like ours started um, uh, you know, started popping up and uh, that's where things really started evolving. Yeah, they were they were based in safety, safety of a victim, getting them out of that situation, getting them to someplace where their abuser couldn't reach them. And it was very much in that, you know, hierarchy of needs. We're not even concerned about what the trauma she faced was and how she's going to recover from that later in life. We just need to get her to a place where she's not in danger of being murdered. Yeah. And I'll also point out too, at this point, 
while men were also not being not allowed in these shelters, were not being even treated as being able to be victims. There's also a lot of ignoring of racial disparities that would impact people of color. Um, Trans folk weren't even recognized as really people, so they weren't even going to be able to get help. And even if they were recognized as a person, the shelters and stuff probably wouldn't be able to provide them with adequate resources anyway at this point. Um, And the movement in and of itself kind of ignored those racial disparities as well. So like the the forced sterilization of um, a person of color, like the movement didn't even address those types of things because again, this movement for a very long time operated from the standpoint of your cis white woman being the baseline. And that was their focus. Right. There is a huge, we know now that race disparity, income disparity, ability, language, you know, all of the, um, all of, all of the, the things that impact domestic and sexual violence, we know that they're important now. Um, we know that we have to address poverty and racial, uh, issues if we are going to address domestic and sexual violence, but it wasn't so clear and convincing in the seventies when this was happening. And that's not to say that there weren't women of color and people of color, um, or individuals in low income situations who weren't doing this work because there were, there were plenty of people of color and plenty of low income, um, uh, areas who were trying to address the issues of domestic and sexual violence, but they were overall being squashed by the visibility that other move or that that other people had in the movement by being white middle class and cisgender yeah i think what ends up happening in like the feminist movement and stuff too is that you there's an understanding that especially early on like the first wave of feminism if you use racial undertones to convince people to give women rights like Okay, yeah, that makes sense because at that time, like, you've got the stereotypes of a African American man being the one who is probably going to be doing harm to a white woman. So, if that's your understanding of what society is viewing, you're latching onto that in order to get the rights that you think you need or the rights that you do need because of at the at the expense of somebody else or at the expense of another group of people, and. It's done a lot of the times, and especially in the feminist movement, it's done a lot of times at every step of the way where there are um, like black trans women who are a massive part of the feminist movement at this point, um, at like the 70s and 80s. And the movement just gets taken from them, basically, or they just get excluded because they're like, you don't have a place here or you're dragging your issues onto our issues and people aren't going to like those issues being talked about. So we're just going to exclude you in order to get at least what we think we want. And this isn't to discredit the the work that was done or the women's movement that was going on because these steps needed to happen to get to where we are now. Um, while obviously, like you said, we know now that that excluded a whole lot of people and you know we're not proud of that, but we know better now and we can do better and the only reason that we can do better is because those things did happen yeah yeah absolutely so um you know kind of moving forward in the timeline we've got the 70s and the early 80s when 
um, battered women's shelters. And you guys can't see us, but when I say the words battered women's shelter or battered women's movement, um, I'm, I'm quote, I'm using quotations in that. That is not something that is currently used. Uh, we don't call, we don't say that we work in the battered women's movement, um, or battered women's movement, but that was historically what it was called. Um, and there's a lot of reasons we don't use that phrasing now. One is that we know abuse is not only physical and the word battered um, implies physical abuse. And we also know that it's not just women. Um, it is individuals of all genders that can experience this. So that's just a note of, uh, you know, as we're talking about this, know that as we reference the battered woman's movement, that is not what we refer it refer to it as today. Anyways, moving forward. <laughs> that was a little mini rant. Um, so after the 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 70s, early 80s, um, the the movement started to become solidified. Agencies like ours started to um, start to figure things out, right? Uh, and throughout the 80s, this work was being done. Um, it wasn't until 1994, right, with the Violence Against Women's Act, that um, this, these two issues of domestic and sexual violence were thrust into the mainstream media and um, addressed on a federal and, and much more widely known scale than it ever, ever had before. I'd also point out at around this exact same time, just before the Violence Against Women Act, um, marital rape became illegal in 1993. Right. So the year that I was born was the year that marital rape became illegal. So until this point, it wasn't even recognized as something that could be done to somebody else in a marriage relationship. Um, so in 1994, when the original uh, Violence Against Women Act was passed, it's also called VAWA, um, what that did was it was the first federal legislation that acknowledged the crimes of domestic and sexual violence and acknowledged them as crimes. Um, not only did it do that, but it provided resource and guidance for communities to address these issues. Um, and not only did it provide resources, but it provided some funding, which was a crucial, crucial missing thing that um, it, it was a glaring missing component of the movement up until this point. Yeah. And I feel like the... I feel like VAWA coming out in 94, kind of what catalyzed that happening was the Anita Hill um, hearing when she accused uh, Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment before he had been confirmed to the Supreme Court. This is kind of the first time on a national stage that this type of hearing had happened, and it allowed for a lot of people to start talking about the issues of sexual harassment, even though that hearing was not done great. And Anita Hill was treated extremely poorly during that hearing. I'm just really not listening to her. It did create a national discussion for one of the first times about these crimes and about these things happening to women. So I have a hard time believing that the Anita Hill hearing is not the catalyst or at least a huge chunk of why VAWA came about in the first place. Because I also feel like it's not a coincidence that now President Joe Biden overseeing that hearing and receiving the backlash that he did for not doing a good job was one of the people who helped write VAWA. Yeah. 
Well, and if, you know, if, if it wasn't, if the, if the Anita held media, I, I almost want to say media scandal, um, because that's kind of how it was portrayed in the nineties, much like, um, the Monica Lewinsky scandal. These were power, powerful political figures who were being publicly accused of sexual misconduct. And while obviously this had happened before, we're not going to say that this was the first time ever in history that a powerful figure had been accused of sexual misconduct. I truly believe that this was a culmination of this movement working as long as it did for as many decades as it did to come to this sort of this head, right? This understanding in our culture of, of something being amiss and something being wrong. Um, and we know now that there was a lot of work to do after the nineties and after the original VAWA act passed. Um, but at the time it was, it was sensational. It was big. It was, it was new, right? Um, and so I think that it's a really important turning point for us um, in the work that we do. And quickly, before we get through all the 90s, I want to point out in the 80s is also when the stereotypes of what feminists look like came about. Um, so like the stereotypes of them just being like hairy legged lesbian man haters. This came about during that time frame specifically to isolate women for wanting to latch on to the movement because it's very isolating, obviously, that if you're considering yourself a feminist and joining and being a part of the feminist movement, but then those stereotypes are going to be associated to you, you don't want those associations, so you're choosing then to not advocate for it. Like, there's quotes from women at the time, like, I support women's rights and stuff, but I don't consider myself a feminist. And you still hear that today. I mean, it's it's 2021 and people are afraid to identify themselves as feminists because of that negative stereotype that's still hanging on to it from the 80s. Right. Um, the the misconceptions that have come from from that time period have been really powerful and really hindering to the work that we do um, and to our advancement for survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Um, if we have to daily fight against misconceptions about women's rights and about feminism, um, that means that we have just that extra layer until we get to the true crux of our job, which is protecting and supporting survivors. So the Violence Against Women Act, the original one was in 1994. It is is renewed or up for renewal every five years. Um, And so there's been many versions. What? Oh, no. I just think it's funny that um, it's a bill that has to be renewed every five years because, you know, violence against women is like, eventually when that ends, we don't need to reauthorize this bill or renew this bill anymore, right? Like. Just make it a law. Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, a good, a, a positive to the fact that it has to be renewed is the fact that it has grown with the times. Um, for example, there in 2013, VAWA enhanced protections, services, and resources for LGBTQ individuals and Native Americans. And, from from 1994 until now, there's been there's been countless changes like that that have grown with our social um, needs of the country. The uh, the downside to it being renewed every five years is that if the government just decides to be slow at it, 
there's a lapse in funding then for all the agencies that rely on the VAWA funding. Right. So it kind of is a double-edged sword because like, yeah, they can renew it and they can add in things that they're like, ah, we can socially, we socially accept LGBTQ plus people now as having issue issues that need to be addressed. So let's throw funding in there for it. But if we want to drag our feet or we want to barter, we can hold up VAWA and then use that as a bargaining chip to release the funding. Yeah, and I don't think that most people understand how crucial VAWA funding is to most service agencies like ours in the United States. Um, that act funnels a lot of money to to, to states who then <laughs> distribute it to um, to agencies and to counties. And so when that VAWA funding is threatened, as it was when was that last year? Um, we are scared. We are scared in our movement about what that does for us, uh, especially in prevention and education, because we acknowledge that the first needs of our movement are to address the needs of survivors. We understand that imminent danger situations um, and helping survivors comes first always. But we cannot, as a, as a field, sustain that forever. And that's why we have to have prevention and education, because if we're not doing this background work to try to make our society understand what domestic and sexual violence are, we're never going to end them. And we're just going to perpetually be putting fires out. Right. Um, and so when funding like VAWA funding is threatened, um, we know in prevention that uh, our our jobs our work is probably going to be the thing that is cut um, because we don't directly help survivors. We do not have client service work in our jobs. Um, and so that's scary because we so passionately believe that our work is crucial in this field. Um, and, and for it to be threatened because of politics is scary. What's also interesting to me is how with VAWA, the coming to like authorizing VAWA for the first time potentially is, a cat is catalyzed from the Anita Hill hearing and how whenever there's this large thing that happens where everyone's talking about it, or everyone's like has like all this news coverage and stuff about it, that tends to be the times where they're like, ah, let's up the funding dial a little bit on this. And say, so, like, see, we are doing things to help. Right. Like when um, Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nasser, Bill Cosby, these really, these really people, these really popular or well-known people had these accusations against them stemming from then the Me Too movement. Obviously, they're going to start pushing more funding in that direction because they're like, if we don't, now we look really bad. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm for. Give us more money because we need it. But it kind of sucks that when something big happens, that's when that funding is going to be up and increased. Not when people who are professionals working in our field say, hey, we need more money. It's when the spotlight is on them that they give us more or they're willing to do more to help us. Right, because those surges come about in the actual work that we do way before it hits the spotlight. 
So for years, we're working with all of these great big new issues that are going on with no public acknowledgement of it and no additional funding for it until this big fantastic thing happens that takes over the news and then oh yeah okay well here's some more money which like you said i mean yeah we'll take the money we need it but we needed it like 10 years ago (laughs) right i think that it just highlights the fact that we have more work to do in in the education field in domestic and sexual violence we have a lot more work to do to make these issues um highlighted but to, to make people care about these issues on the daily rather than when these surges come up. Um, and, you know, we're not going to be perfect at it. And unfortunately, you know, just as with the the work that was done in the 70s, I'm sure that now we are not doing we are not doing the best that we should. Right. I'm sure that there are things that we are forgetting or things that we are going to learn about in 20, 30 years and say, man, we should have been focusing on X, Y, Z issues this whole time instead of focusing on, you know, instead of ignoring them or whatever. So it it's really just, it's a, it's a movement. It is a movement because we are part of this. We know and acknowledge that we aren't going to be perfect, but we're trying <laughs> um, just as all of those all of our predecessors were trying their hardest and we we've gotten to a place where me too was a turning point. It really was in our society where victims can say I was a victim of this and they can receive, if not support acknowledgement and acceptance that hadn't happened before that, right? Not on this sort of wide scale. So we might not be doing um, you know, we we may look back and say, oh, we could have done more, but we're doing stuff. We are trying. Yeah. And I want to point out, too, that those big moments that happen where then the movement gets kind of like thrown into the spotlight. We'll all we'll say like, yeah, we, we're doing like a lot of good work now or like we're trying to do better and everything. But that's also on the backs of all of the people who have been victims before it's like these things don't come about until there's somebody who has been victimized or like i care about that person i can't believe it or wow i can't believe that person would do something like that to somebody because we've demonized these like sexual like sexual assault acts and stuff it's like well yeah this should be demonized but like we're like i can't believe someone who looks so nice and stuff like that would do those things and it requires somebody who is well-known and well-liked to do these awful things to people who we should care about just innately, but we don't until something bad happens to them. So our movement is not only built upon the people who have been doing good work to advocate, but it's also built upon the backs of all of the people who have been victimized before. Absolutely. I, I am steadfast in my belief that the three of us, people in our positions, cannot could not, should not be able to do the work that we do um, without the strength of survivors who have given us the insight and the knowledge and um, and really the bravery to allow us to use use their story to learn and to then teach communities and to teach our society a little bit about what they went through um, and to collect it on a, a larger scale and to make bigger change. And so we 
there's never a day that goes by in my work where I don't think about the survivors um, who have allowed me to understand all of this knowledge that I have on domestic and sexual violence. And I'll close out my um, my mansplaining and women's history <laughs> 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 with just pointing out that, and while we pointed out in this, all of the steps and strides that we've made, it really sucks for some people who are in our movement or doing the work that we do who have been shouting this for years and now just finally they're being listened to like intersectionality has been necessary from the get-go it's like i said frederick frederick Douglass spoke at seneca falls it's like the two movements could have worked together instead the women's movement chose to not and chose to use those the racial stereotypes of that time to try and push their movement forward so when we have then people like kimberly crenshaw who has been doing this work a lot longer than us and kind of coined the term intersectionality the fact that it had to get to her in and of itself sucks but then also for her to do this work longer than we are and we still have people in our line of work or still have people who say that they are advocates for the things that we do but don't see how all of these things are connected is still a huge step that we have to get over. Yeah. So um, this, this episode kind of turned into more of a conversational uh, thing for us, but we enjoyed talking about this and we enjoyed doing the, the research on both, you know, where women's history month came from um, reminding ourselves of some of those larger uh, issues in the women's liberation movement. And then also, looking at how how do those things fit into our work um so it's been a really interesting episode to prepare for um and so to all of you out there happy women's history month um we are acknowledging it you know in our own work and we hope that you can uh, acknowledge the women in your lives and the women that have come before you and how we want to um prepare our world for for the women of future generations also, before we close out, I think we missed one of the most important pieces of women's history. What's that? Women were the first brewers. <laughs> Guys. We did, we did miss that, Sean. <laughs> I don't think you realize how important beer is to history. Well, tell us about it. <laughs> Alcohol's great. What? So just from that standpoint, but... Looking back in gen- like all the stereotypes and everything that we sure. have of gender roles, is women were the first brewers because originally it was being brewed in the home and it was viewed as a home task, which means if you like beer, you need to make sure you thank women because it's <laughs> would it, because without women we would never have had beer. That is important. That was crucial. That was crucial. So I am a beer fan, so I get that. I get it. It's it's important. I didn't know that. But I thank the women of the past who brewed brews for me. So thank you all for listening today. Please feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Touchy Subs Pod to keep up to date when we have episodes going out or anything else going on. Email any questions, comments, or concerns to touchysubjectspodcast at gmail.com. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects.